Okay, so we're one week into the new year, and most of us, we've probably shared New Year's greetings with family, friends, colleagues at work, school, in our circles. If you haven't, then let me personally extend a very happy new year to you. And with the new year, there's opportunity to reflect, uh, to see what happened in the past 12 months, to assess what went right, what went wrong, and perhaps to reorient ourselves or recalibrate ourselves to make resolutions to better ourselves. And um, in a company or in an organization, you may have received um, wherever you are, uh, some kind of New Year message, um, kind of reflecting, assessing, recalibrating, that kind of stuff. Um, maybe you've caught something online from the president or a celebrity, but more importantly, you've probably spent some time together with your family and friends uh, on New Year's Eve, New Year's Day perhaps, or, or sometime this past week, or maybe today, later, later on today. And through these meetings, through these messages, through all this, we have time to reflect on 2023, the major milestones of 2023, and kind of taking stock of what went right, what went wrong, and how to make it better in 2024. So in planning, perhaps, the resolutions, or maybe you've cared for none of it, which is okay, and maybe you just spend some personal or private time to yourself to, to meet the new year, perhaps. Whatever it is, today's passage, it will allow us to reflect on more than just 2023, 24, but instead it will allow us to reflect on all of life, on all of life. New Year is special because it allows us to expect something new. It's a new year. So what, what can we expect later on? Uh, we're only one week deep, uh, but actually there, there really is no difference between December 20, uh, or 31st, 2023 and <laughs> January 1st, 24. There really is no difference, but in an unconscious way or perhaps a conscious way, there is a bit of excitement awaiting the new year. And it's this expectation of something new that in our passage today, it's not necessarily a new year, but they are, the crowds we will see, are expecting something new. They're marveling at this person, Jesus, his teaching, the might of his word, and his mighty deeds, and reports of him, rumors of him spread. It spreads and it spreads like wildfire, and more and more people are gathering. And it's in this context, as a great crowd is swelling up all over, from Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Tyre, Sidon, all these different places, uh, to put it into context, it's like from here, Fresh Meadows to Riverhead. These great crowds have this great expectation. So we see among the crowds, tax collectors, the sick, outcasts, perhaps even non-Jews, outsiders, and 
through providence, even the demon-possessed and the dead are met by the Lord. And Jesus knows why they've gathered. There's not a singular reason. He knows why they've gathered. But for us, we, we, we can perhaps surmise that it's not a singular reason. There are various reasons, right? Tax collectors, they are the traitors of Jewish society. And here is this man talking about inclusion. And here are the sick, desperate for something to, to turn their situation around. And there's this news of a healer and the outcasts, perhaps the lepers who are barred from, from joining into the greater society, especially among the Jews. Here's this man talking about healing and, and inclusion. And even through providence, the dead are brought back to life. So there's great expectations. And not only that, there's also the poor, and um, those of lowly spirit, and among those, among the crowd, there's also the intellectuals, the scribes, and perhaps spies sent by the Jewish elite to see what this man is talking about, to what he's, what he's bringing, what, what, what kind of um, thing he's, he's presenting to the world. And so, as the people come, they sought him, and they came to him, and they would keep him in the town to keep him from leaving. But Jesus says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For it was this reason that I was sent. He doesn't say, I must perform miracles. But instead he says, I must preach the good news. This is the purpose for which I was sent. And so when all the great crowds are gathering from all walks of life, from all over, when Jesus had this tremendous opportunity with this great crowd before him, what does he do? He tells a story. He tells a story about a sower. It's a very plain, ordinary story about a farmer, essentially a gardener, and you can sense a little bit of maybe a deflation. It's kind of anticlimactic. They're, they're coming with this great expectation and here's a story about a sower. And you can imagine if I came up here and I told you about perhaps the ant and the grasshopper, you would kind of scratch your head. What's going on here? <laughs> so why a parable? Why is Jesus telling them a parable? And even Matthew records for us, why do you speak to them? The disciples asking Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? Well, it's a teaching aid. Uh, the word literally is parabola, which is with, or with and placed. So with this plain story is placed a heavenly truth. With this very ordinary gardener story, there is a deeper eternal purpose. And so we even read in Matthew and Mark that Jesus didn't talk to them at all, tell them anything without using a parable. And Mark even records for us that Jesus told his disciples, don't you understand this parable? Then how will you understand all the parables? 
And so, we come to the reading of the parable. So let's turn to the word, Luke 8, 4 through 15. I'll be reading from the LSB. So here now the reading of God's word. Now, when a large crowd was coming together, and those from the various cities were journeying to him, he spoke by way of a parable. The sower went to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. And other seed fell on the rock, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And other seed fell upon fell among the thorns, and when the thorns grew up with it, they choked it out. Another seed fell into the good soil, and growing up, it produced a crop 100 times as great. As he said these things, he would call out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And his disciples began questioning him as to what this parable meant. And he said, to you, it has been given and has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God, and those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart, so that they will not believe and be saved. And those on the rock are those who, when they hear, they receive it with they receive the word with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation fall away. And the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of life, and do not bear ripe fruit. But the seed in the good soil. These are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. Amen. Among the parables that Jesus tells, this is unequivocally one that Jesus will explain to his disciples. And so Jesus answers here, to you, it has been given. You see, the to you is passive. The you is passive here. So this knowledge does not come from deep within the disciples. It's not a hidden knowledge that they have to unlock somehow. It's something that they have to receive. And it's not a man-originated knowledge, but it's a God-given knowledge. The main actor here is God. God is the one giving the knowledge. And the act, well, this act of the parable telling, it reveals, and at the same time, it conceals. You would think that Jesus would want there to be a great crowd and perhaps reveal this tremendous truth, but Jesus actually says it's to reveal and to conceal. It's in other words, to kind of thin out the crowd. And so, we'll look at the parable in this fashion. The soil, the seed, and the harvest. Which is uncannily the title. The soil, 
the seed and the harvest. Well, let's look at the, the soil first. Uh, there's not a lot of work for me to do here because Jesus basically explains it all. But the soil is, as we can tell, the heart. It's the heart. And I think it's very deliberate that Jesus uses the word soil. It's very deliberate because in the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, the word for soil, it actually is dust or earth. Uh, it reminisces, it's reminiscent of the creation narrative of the Garden of Eden. And I think it fits overall with the main um, context, the main thrust of Luke overall, because the kingdom of God for Luke, he's saying that the kingdom is not just for the Jews, it's for the Gentiles as well, it's for the whole world. And we have biblical grounds for seeing Genesis in a lot of Luke's presentation of the gospel. For example, whereas Matthew has Jesus' genealogy going from Abraham to David, then to Jesus, Luke goes backward from Jesus to Joseph, as was supposed, to David, to Abraham, to Noah, to Seth, and then to Adam, the Son of God. It's meant to remind us of the creation narrative of Adam in the garden. And so, reading from Genesis 2, the Lord God formed a man of dust, soil, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. In essence, God is the original gardener. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The under gardener, the junior gardener, if you will. And he commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And this tree is not a magical tree. There's no inherent magic in this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But instead, it was meant for Adam and Eve to cultivate by obeying, cultivate the knowledge of good and evil through obedience. By obeying, that is, not eating and keeping the garden they would experientially know what it means to be good. So they would know good from evil experience-wise. But by disobeying, by eating of the fruit, and failing to keep the garden, they would know evil through experience. So it's a reminder of Adam's fall, his disobedience. Adam and Eve disregarded God's word. And instead, they listen to the empty promise of Satan. And so we see the result in Genesis 3. It comes swiftly. Cursed is the ground because of you, the Lord speaking. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. Soil. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, soil. 
and to dust you shall return. There is a little bit of a danger in me saying all this that maybe I'm over importing meaning, but nevertheless, I think in, in, in light of all of Luke, there's textual grounds for seeing Genesis as a, a, a context for, for this parable. And so, the four different types of soils. There are four different types of hearts, four different types of ears. Um, the first is the road. The seed is simply trampled, simply trampled. The birds devour. Um, essentially, these are those who are too busy. They're on the road to go somewhere. They're, they're on, on a destination track and they can't be disturbed. And so they trample on the seed. It's most likely unconscious, perhaps conscious, but they're going somewhere and too busy for the seed. The second type is the rock. The seed sprouts, but it quickly withers because there's no moisture. They hear and receive with joy, but quickly fall away with testing. And the third, the thorns. Well, the seed does grow, but eventually it's choked and it proves unfruitful. The Palestinian weeds and thorns grow to be six feet tall. It's as tall as me. And all the nutrients are basically gobbled up. There's none left for the plant. The cares and riches and pleasures overwhelm and overtake the person. I think more can be said to nuance some of these, but the main issue is the heart. If you see in Luke's presentation, the prepositions kind of give it away. Along the road, on the rock, among the thorns. None of it go into the soil. The main issue is depth. It doesn't go deep enough to capture the heart. Whereas the last soil, into, goes into the soil. An honest and good heart. And it deeply takes root. The soil holds fast to the seed, and the seed, it grips onto the soil through growing its roots. So the soil is held by the seed, and the seed held by, the, held by each other. They're holding each other. And I think this is what Jesus means when he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What is your heart captured by? And for the first type of soil, there's no interest. There's no interest. For the second and third, the seed seems to be doing something, but it proves unfruitful, it withers. And the last one, the one that goes into the good soil, whether it's scorching heat or high winds or beating rain, is sustained, is sustained. And I think to our modern years, it sounds a little bit like, well, if I actually saw, it would be easier to believe. If I actually saw these things, if God made it plain to me, then it would be easier. But I think through the examples that we we're given in scripture, especially this crowd, I don't think so. Uh, I don't think so. The crowds that gathered around Jesus They've witnessed the restoration that Jesus brought. 
They've witnessed the, the blind receiving sight. They've witnessed restoration of mobility to the lame, lepers being cleansed, the deaf hearing, and even the dead coming back to life. Yet, in the very same crowd, some didn't believe. They even doubted, and some even wanted to stone him. It shows you that when Jesus says, to you it has been given, it really is a God-given understanding. It's a passive thing. We simply receive, and God is the one acting. God is the one who gives understanding. And I think one example, an example from Exodus, will illustrate what I mean to our modern years. If we see it, if we saw it, then, then it will be easier to believe. But actually, the stories in Exodus, I don't know. The first, the road, well, this is, Pharaoh's, this is from Pharaoh's perspective. Pharaoh has witnessed all the plagues. It has devastated his crop, devastated his people, and finally, finally, it devastated his family. He lost his firstborn son. And so, after the tenth plague struck him, he says to Moses, Up! Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. But in just a moment, he actually has a change. He hardens his heart, and he says, What is this we have done? We have let Israel go from serving us. Basically, he lost all his all his manpower, manpower resources. And so he chases after them with his army. And the rock, well, this is from Israelites, the Israelites' perspective. They've witnessed the same plagues. They've even seen the tenth plague ravage through Egypt. And they were spared from it. The destroyer passed over them. And when they've left Egypt and they were between a rock and a hard place, the Red Sea and the Egyptian army, they were still unable to hear. They were crying out to Moses, we'd rather serve the Egyptians. Why'd you lead us out of Egypt? They've just witnessed the same plagues. Yet they were still unable to hear. And the thorns, well, the Israelites, Despite saying such a thing, the Lord still delivered them from the Egyptian army. They've witnessed the Red Sea collapse on the army and swallow them up in one fell swoop. They've seen the Lord descend on Mount Sinai, and they're at the cusp of entering the Promised Land. And yet, when there was a small delay, what did they do? They grabbed Aaron and told him, build us a golden calf. Why? Because there was a small delay. And so, the golden calf was built, and this is what is recorded for us. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Their hearts, it was their hearts that were unchanged. And eventually we will see later on in Exodus, the Israelites, the same generation, they were grumbling about food and drink. They've witnessed the mighty power of God and they were saying, 
Oh, that we had meat to eat. The fish, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garden. There's nothing to look at except this manna. There's something very common between Pharaoh and the Israelites. The road, the rock, and the thorns. And what's common? Well, they've both, they've all heard the word and they've seen the mighty signs, and yet their hearts were unaffected. Their hearts were unaffected. And so, if those who've seen and they've heard did not believe, then what? Then what? What can we do? Well, I think an obvious thing here is that the soil, no matter how fertile the soil is, in and of itself, the soil has no power to bring about life. In and of itself, it has no power. It only has the capacity to hold something. It's simply, if you will, fuel to the fire. And so we come to the seed. The seed. It needs a seed. Uh, throughout scripture, the word of God refers to itself, the word, with power. For example, mighty sword, double-edged sword. But here, Jesus describes the word as a seed. It's very small and inconspicuous. It doesn't seem like much. It's very vulnerable. You just step on it, and birds come and devour it. But it's potent. Just a few seeds scattered on fertile soil can feed an entire village and more. And it seems inconspicuous. It's small. How can such a thing? But it's unmistakably certain. It's through the seeds that people will be fed. It might be gradual. It might take time. You will need patience. But it's unmistakably certain. Without good soil, there will be no growth, there will be no harvest, but with good soil and seed, harvest is certain, is certain. And this is the mystery that Jesus is talking about, the mysteries of the kingdom of God. It's inconspicuous, it's small and vulnerable, yet it's potent, it's mighty, and it's absolutely sure. And so Jesus says, to you, it has been given to know the secrets, the mysteries of the kingdom. And normally, we would associate kingdoms with power, with title, eminence, prestige, conquest, blood, tribute, land, wealth. Essentially, is power. We associate kingdoms with power. Think of Nebuchadnezzar. He had the, he had the authority to command people to bow. Or Cyrus, who overthrew Nebuchadnezzar through conquest. Or think of Alexander the Great, who with swiftness dominated most of the known world at the time. Or even greater, the Roman Empire. And yet, Jesus compares the kingdom of God, the everlasting kingdom of God, to a seed, a small little seed. And this is the secret. This is the mystery. Seeing that they may see, they may not see, and hearing that they may not understand. And this is pulled right out of Isaiah. Um, in Isaiah, we read, 
after the vision that, that Isaiah has of the glory of God filling the temple. This is what the Lord says to Isaiah. Go and say to his people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn to be healed. And Isaiah asks, how long, O Lord? And this is how the Lord responds. Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is this stump. What's going on here? Essentially, the Lord is saying that he will judge and wipe away every person until the holy one remains, the holy seed, the stump remains. And in the Old Testament, we see this played out again and again. Uh, most vividly, I think we can think of Noah when only his family was spared and everyone else was wiped away. And not simply on Noah, but as we played again with Israel, when only a few remained through conquest, only a few remained, and of the few that remained, they were taken to Babylon. And it's in Babylon, in exile, when they were prisoners, Nebuchadnezzar the king had a dream mysterious dream and Daniel interprets the dream through God-given interpretation, God-given divine knowledge and the interpretation is a little stone a little stone cut without human hands will destroy all the kingdoms of the world and eventually this little stone will grow and grow and grow into a great mountain which fills the whole earth so the Bible here is challenging the way we think about the world, kingdoms, our logic. The world seeks wisdom, the world seeks signs, but the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Even the Israelites who were well-versed, well-knowledgeable in Scripture, they missed it. They missed it. The whole point, they were eagerly awaiting the Messiah to come and restore the kingdom. And the Holy Seed appears. Jesus appears on the scene and the great crowds are awaiting with great expectations. And though he is the king, he appears as the servant of the Lord. Though he is the son of God, he calls himself the son of man. And precisely when it was opportune for Jesus to use his fame with the rally of the great crowds, crying, Hosanna, son of David, king of Israel. Even when the Jewish authorities were trembling and feared that his power would surpass theirs, and Jesus demonstrated his authority in, in word and in deed by bringing about miracles, who even is this raising the dead? When he had serious potential to overthrow the Roman yoke and finally restore the kingdom of Israel to its rightful, rightful place, Jesus defies the logic of this world. 
He gives himself over to the rulers and the powers that be. He was made to look vulnerable and insignificant. He was mocked before the Jewish council, before Herod, before Pontius Pilate, before the intellectuals. Well, the rulers of that day, they cared more about keeping power, keeping prestige, the pleasures that come with it, and the crowds that once cheered Hosanna now cried, crucify him. And even the disciples who said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Even they deserted him. And so Jesus, he walks the road from Pilate's headquarters to Golgotha, wearing a crown of thorns, carrying a Roman cross, hearing the crowd call out, if you really are the king, if you really are the Christ, save yourself. And he was nailed to the cross beside two criminals. Then one mocked him, aren't you the Christ? Then save yourself and save me. The other criminal asked Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replies, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Not a paradise that fades, not an Edenic paradise, but an everlasting garden, an everlasting kingdom. And as a grain of wheat which falls into the ground and dies, Jesus died. Whereas the first Adam died and returned to the earth, the second Adam, he died, was buried, and after three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, he was raised as the first fruits of those who has fallen asleep. This is how one translation puts it, reading from first, reading from first Corinthians. He was raised the first of a great harvest of all who have died. You see, in the Old Testament, after Passover, three days after the Passover, there was the, the feast of the first fruits, where the people would bring their first fruit offering, the first of their harvest, to offer to the Lord. It was a sure sign that harvest is coming. And it even says in Leviticus, the Lord speaking, no grain is to be harvested until the first fruits are brought to the Lord. It's a reminder. It's a reminder that harvest is sure. It's sure. And so, three days after Jesus died, buried, Jesus was raised as the first fruit. It's a sure sign that harvest is coming. And Jesus even says, the harvest is plentiful. The kingdom of God has come, essentially. It's not a distant thing in the future far off, but it's something that's already here. It's a reminder, just like for the Israelites, the first fruits, a reminder that the harvest is coming because they were delivered out of the land of Egypt and they had their own land that they could cultivate. Also for us, it's a reminder that we have been delivered from evil and already we are citizens of heaven, the heavenly city flowing with living water. 
There's no need for sun and moon because the harvest is already fully, fully grown. Instead, it's the glory of God that shines forth. It's not here yet. It's not here yet fully. And in other words, it's been inaugurated, but it's not fully consummated. One day, our faith will give way to sight. And we read in 1 Corinthians, in the same place where we read the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, just as we, we have borne the image of the man of dust. On that day, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And this is the mystery, the mystery that the seed, the word of God, is himself the divine gardener, and he has come in the flesh to die and to bring about a harvest with his resurrection. And one day he will return as the divine reaper. Now this parable, it sounds like it's about your immediate response, but it's actually about your overall life response. It's not a moment-by-moment -moment picture of how you respond to the Word of God, but in terms of your whole life, what kind of response have I given to God's Word? Well, given the new year, um, I think it's appropriate that we reflect back, not just on 2023, but on all of our life. The busyness of Thanksgiving and Christmas is over, and yet we're met with a new busyness the business of the new year, perhaps we've made resolutions, health-related, finance-related, or, or family-related, and perhaps for some of us, we've made business goals uh, to cut unnecessary expenses or start a new marketing strategy or whatever it might be. Or perhaps we might not have a specific plan, um, but instead we have an eager expectation for something new. Despite all of that, despite all the busyness in the midst of it, hold fast to the word, hold fast. And for all, some of us, the year will hold tests. Um, without discrimination, the sun rises on all and the rain falls on all. At times it's nice and warm, but at times it can be scorching hot. And sometimes the rain is sweet but when it rains too much, it feels overwhelming. We will be challenged. Nevertheless, hold fast to the word. And lastly, the cares and riches and pleasures. Who doesn't have cares? We all have cares. But when those cares become all-consuming and it makes us anxious, don't forget, you already have the harvest. The riches are already yours. Not that the world, not as the world offers it to us, not as the world knows it, but in light of the harvest that Jesus has inaugurated. Yes, we were meant to have pleasures forevermore, but not in the way that the world knows it, through the glittering and sparkling and shiny things, but through Jesus, who has borne it all. So hold fast to the word, for his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So Jesus told this parable to all. Some, they were hungering and thirst, thirsting after righteousness. 
Some may have stumbled in or just tagged along, yet Jesus tells this message to all of them. And even in the people who heard, there were some who were uh, demon-possessed. And uh, we read earlier, right before this parable, that there were twelve, and among among the twelve, uh, among with the twelve, were some women that were healed of evil spirits. Mary Magdalene, one of them, from whom seven demons had gone out. It's not to say that unbelievers are demon possessed, but the point that I'm trying to make is that no one is out of the reach of God, whether in high society, low class, whether well educated or not, whether young or old. God looks at the heart. And apart from him, you and I can do nothing. So hold fast to the word, and he will bring about his purpose, his harvest. Well, why don't we pray? Lord God, thank you for the message of the parable of the sower. What a simple yet profoundly deep parable. Oh, would that you give us ears to hear that we may have the seed planted deeply within our hearts that it will produce fruit hundredfold. We know that you will do this because we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.